The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We've got uh, a non-annuity EDU show after spending a month with uh, the month of June as a new National Annuity Awareness Month. So um, I actually don't have a full understanding of what topic Jim is going to bring to us today for the EDU show, but I believe it had some Ed Slot influence, so it's going to be likely IRA-related, since uh, that's where Jim extracts most of his IRA and tax uh, information. So I'll let Jim describe where we're headed on today's show. Well, this is, if you want proof, besides my inability to speak English, that this podcast is not scripted and we don't go back and edit it, there is perfect proof. Because Chris asked me, what are we going to do? I says, don't because we have a tight one hour scheduled today on this recording. And uh, today is June 30th. We just finished recording the Q&A show, actually. And now we have to get the EDU show recorded because Jacob, one of the juniors in the office, who I was toying with bringing on this podcast to battle Chris in like a cage fight, kind of like Elon Musk and and Zuckerberg are chatting about doing, which will never happen. Um, But Jacob is actually out and about gallivanting. And that's why we have to record this podcast today. Because uh, he's the one who posts it for us, and he's on vacation, apparently. So hopefully everybody had a good July 4th. Is this playing before or after July 4th? After, right? Yeah, this is right after. And plus, right we after. would have had to record on July 4th to do this at the regular ah, time. July 4th is on a Tuesday. So hopefully everybody had a good July 4th, and it was fun for you. I have no idea if I had a good one or not, because, well, it's... Four days before July 4th. But uh, hopefully by the time this plays, I had a very good July 4th. So what I meant that it was Ed Slot inspired is you remember we when I took my latest Ed Slot exam, we have to take an exam every six months. In fact, I'm supposed to take mine. I keep getting nasty grams from them that I haven't done it yet. Um, I asked all the questions and saw if you could answer them. 
this morning, I do most of my reading in the morning. And I usually wake up between five and six in the morning, folks. And I do a lot of reading in bed through my iPad. This caught my attention. It said, are you smarter than a college financial planning student? Mm. I thought I was. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not. Uh-oh. And these were a series of questions from something called the Financial Planning Challenge. And I thought maybe you knew what the hell that was and you could mm. share it with us. I believe that is the um, kind of competitive trivia slash knowledge bowl type thing that they do at the annual Financial Planning Association meetings with um, students that are there attending usually you know, universities will send some students to the to the FPA meetings. I haven't been to an FPA meeting now since prior to COVID. Uh, everything kind of shut down over COVID, but I, I attended the FPA meeting last in Minneapolis and took some students there. But I'm I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's it's related to to that. It's yep. sort of. I conference. looked it up. It says yeah. the financial planning challenge. I'm just reading this yeah. from the website, so don't know if it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Is an annual competition for undergraduate students enrolled in financial planning degree degree programs registered with the CFP board, mm -hmm. organized by the Financial Planning Association. The challenge engages students in preparing and presenting a complete financial plan as well as demonstrating expertise by answering questions about mm -hmm. retirement planning, taxes, insurance, yep. and estate planning. Yep. The quiz you are about to take, it says, is based on actual questions from the competition. Mm -hmm. This sounds scary. No. Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> hey, I got some of them <laughs> wrong. And under protest, I might add, because I think I'm right. Um. This questions are taken from the part of the, com the, the competition known mm -hmm. as How Do You Know? Again, I'm not making This is what it says. Mm -hmm. So, to test your skills against those of the student teams, click Start Slideshow below. Mm -hmm. So, I did this morning. Hmm. And they're supposed to be from easiest to hardest. Let me tell you, the hard ones are easy. The easy ones are the ones that made me scratch my head. <laughs> it's reverse psychology. It is. And I, I will tell you which ones I didn't get right and which ones I protest because I feel that as, as with anything on this, what I start doing because of the way I am is I start overanalyzing it, what ifing it and going down rabbit holes mm -hmm. and you, you can't keep it simple, stupid, which is hard for me. I'm stupid, but I can't keep it simple. So there's a couple of these folks I, I got wrong. And there's one that they're wrong. There's no doubt in my mind they are wrong. Well, is, is it one maybe that's changed and it was right when they asked the question and now it's wrong because of Secure 2 or something? It was a Secure 2 question, yes. Yeah. So, so maybe you're right. Maybe at the time it was right. Yeah. And I answered it under Secure 2, but they kind of had a Secure 2 answer. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So you'll see when we get to that one. There's 15 questions. I doubt we're going to get to all of them because I don't want this just to be me ask a question. Chris tries to answer it. I tell him if I got it right or wrong too, and we move on. 
just like we did with the Ed Slot, I want to get into some of the nuances and teach a little bit. But I thought our listeners, after a whole freaking month on annuities, we kind of lighten it up a little. And and people seem to enjoy the Ed Slot one, which I'll do on a regular basis now, which are just IRA questions. This is runs a, a potpourri, a plethora, a, a bunch, whichever, whatever word you want to use of different types of questions. We'll begin with, again, they're supposed to be easiest to hardest on these 15 questions. I will read the question and the four answers you get to choose from. Oh, it's multiple choice? Yes. Oh, I feel a little better now. I will let you know if I got it right or wrong. Okay. And then you will try to answer, and then you and I can can kind of share a little bit about the, the answer. How's that? Okay, sounds good. All right, first one, which is the easiest question, if you believe it's answered... Asked from easiest to hardest, which of the following is the, and, and this I might add, I got wrong under protest. Okay. Which of the following is the logical, and it, that's the word that probably screwed me up because I don't use logic. I go down rabbit holes. Which of the following is the logical first step in the budgeting process, A, decide how much is to be saved or invested. B, list all the categories and expenses. C, well, I'll read it exactly the way they say. List all the categories and amounts of the expenses. C, Estimate all the income and income sources for the budgeting period. D, eliminate all discretionary expenses. What is the logical first step in the budgeting process? C, as in Charlie. C, as in Charlie. Estimate all the income and income sources for the budgeting period. You are correct. You get a little clap. Mm-hmm. You get a little clap thing going. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Now, the reason I knew that was the answer is that in the formal approach to putting together a budget at the very top of that statement that you put together are the income sources first. So when they're teaching a student how to do this, you got to get that you work top to bottom. So you've got to get the income sources first, and then we lay out all the expenses below that and see what we've got and then adapt, you know, adjust as the budget requires. So that's why in my mind, at least it made sense to be C as the answer. Not me. I, I looked at our process and our process begins yeah. with our clients identifying to me, it doesn't matter which one you identify right. first, yeah. the expenses or the income. So that right. was the first, you got to have both. <laughs> right. right. I'm, I'm in bed at five in the morning saying, yeah. this is a stupid question. It doesn't matter which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Who cares? You need yeah. both. Yeah. I get it. But I said, well, us, we begin by asking our clients to identify the categories, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare. And then, of course, we also go fun. But when we are putting a retirement plan together, they provide us that and the income. I just went expenses first and then the income. You got to net the two out. That's the whole point. So you really would have dinged a kid wrong if they said, hey, I begin by asking my clients for the expenses first, 
then the income. Oh, no, 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 no. You must ask for the income first, then the expenses. That's the thing that yeah. I say. Under I, I never would have written the question like this personally, but okay. So I wouldn't have. I, I wouldn't have faced that dilemma. <laughs> that's why. That's why with me, folks, under protest. Okay. Okay. Question two. Remember, they get progressively hotter allegedly. Question two: Which of the following would appear on a statement of financial position? And again, I have to say. At five something in the morning by now, it's like five ten. Did I get this one wrong? Boom, boom. No, I got this one right. But I do want to protest because I had no idea what a statement of financial position is. Mm -hmm. Why did they have to come up with a new word for what they were talking about? When, When did you guys start using statement of financial position Instead of balance sheet? Well, balance, balance, balance sheet. sheet's a corporate finance term. And while it's certainly equivalent, a statement of financial position does not have what a balance sheet typically has, which is an equity section. We were taught at BU household balance sheet. Yep. Yeah, they abandoned that because uh, a balance a, sheet has an equity but section. But it was it. a household balance sheet. Yeah, talk to so. the CFP board of standards. <laughs> I just was saying, come on, seriously, we got yeah. new words for everything. So we have to call a household balance sheet now a statement of financial position. I had to actually Google, folks, before I answered this statement of financial whoa, position. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you answered, you Googled the answer? I didn't know what a statement of financial position was. <laughs> well, I definitely would have dinged you as a student for cheating. I'm not cheating. It's what the hell is a state? I'm a 60-year-old financial planner. I didn't know you now can't say household balance sheet. You have to say statement of financial position. All right, folks, now that you know what a statement of financial position is, it's a damn household balance sheet. Which of the following appears on it? Or in other words, which of the three don't? Your salary? No. Will you let me answer first before you start saying yes or no? Okay. Client's salary, it says, but I I said your salary. Salary, homeowner's insurance premium. No. Coupon bond payments. No. Home mortgage balance. Bingo. Right there. Do you want to explain why then before I answer? Well, the others are expenses. They're on the statement of income and expenses or budget, depending on what you're doing. A budget simply being a proposed statement of income and expenses. So, yes, that's uh, your mortgage balance is a debt. On the statement of financial position, you have all of your assets on the left. On the right, you have all of your debts. And the difference between those two is your net worth. Okay. That is pretty much what they say. Home mortgage balance is long-term debt and listed on the statement of financial position. Household balance. (laughs) I'm glad you got it right after Googling it. But they do even put here, though, Chris. Home mortgage balances, long-term debt, and listed on the statement of financial position or balance sheet. And when I read that, because you, you don't see the answer until you hit next. So, again, I went to Google mm-hmm. to figure out what the statement of financial position was. And then when I saw in the answer, that's where they define or balance sheet. Why didn't they put that in the damn question? 
Which of the following would appear on a statement of financial position or balance? This has really, really got you upset. This one got to me. This is... Okay, I told you I overanalyze things. <clears throat> they go on to say items A and C are sources of income, so they are cash inflows. Okay. Whereas item B, the mortgage, excuse me, the insurance premiums, that is a bill and is mm-hmm. paid on cash outflow. Yep. All of those would appear on the income and expense statement. Yep. So again, I can see how they're teaching young mush minds of college kids how all this mm-hmm. works. Yeah, because most but, of them have no idea how right, any of that works. They, they, no they don't I, experience any of that stuff yet. So this is all a, for, a foreign language to them. Exactly. But apparently I'm not smarter than a college financial planning <laughs> student. So that's why I wanted one of the juniors on a cage fight against you because the juniors should get oh, it all right. They nailed they, it. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they're out of, they've only been out of school for about three years. They haven't been corrupted yet with the way things really work. Right. Okay, next question, folks. Which of the following is a qualified transfer and not subject to transfer taxes? I'm going to say ahead of time, I got this right, but definitely under protest because two of the answers are right. Now, maybe... When no, they they were right. Even uh, let me see. When was this based on? Hold on one second. These questions came from the past two financial planning challenges, so they would have been okay. from twenty twenty two and twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Okay, so I stand by my assertion that two of these questions would have been right. Okay, uh, before we go in, in case people want to know the, uh, the question, which of the following is a qualified transfer and not subject to transfer taxes? Everybody hears and thinks about two types of taxes. You guys thinks of, think of income taxes and capital gains taxes. Those are the big taxes everyone pays attention to. Transfer taxes are another tax. Now, people who live in states with state, a, a state tax. I hate state and a state. They're too close. But people who live in a state that also levies in a state tax, they are very familiar with the concept of transfer tax. Most people don't pay attention to the transfer tax system. We know the capital gains tax system. We know the income tax system. Everybody ignores the transfer tax system. The government taxes wealth that you have and want to pass on to other people. They call that transfer taxes. They tax it two ways, while you're living via a gift tax or while you're dead via an estate tax. There was a time both of those were separate taxes. And if we want to get even deeper, if you skip a generation, in other words, you gift to a grandchild, or to someone, I think, two generations younger than you, you will pay yet another transfer tax, the generation skipping tax. Everybody ignores the transfer tax system because after, I think, about 2000, they started raising the limits very high. And then, what was it, almost eight years ago? No, portability came out. 
gosh, portability came out, I think, 12 or 15 years ago now. And they combined the estate and gift tax. They unified it as one. Before, they were two separate taxes. It was really confusing. You had generation skipping tax. You had a gift tax. You had an estate tax. And they operated independently of each other. They made the gift tax, the giving of money while you're alive, and the estate tax, the giving of money when you're dead. And when I say they, I'm talking the federal government. They combined them and unified it and have made it easier. They kept the generation skipping tax separate. But all of that is a transfer tax. We ignore it because the exemption limits have steadily increased from $600,000 where they were for a very long time, especially when yours truly was just getting into the industry. And then they raised it to a million and then I think 3 million and then 5 million. And now we're at 12 million per person and I'm rounding. It's 12 million and change. And as a couple, you're looking at 24 million. So most people ignore transfer taxes unless you live in Washington. Washington or Massachusetts, or I can't remember some of the other states that have a state estate taxes with limits as low as a million dollars or less in some states. Some are higher, but they're relatively low enough that people living in those states who just were good, dedicated, honest savers and earned a reasonable wage and were successful may have amassed a net worth that is going to subject their wealth to a transfer tax to the state they live in when they die. So that's the transfer tax system, in case you guys don't know. Anything else you want to add on that, Mr. Professor? No, that's a good, good recap. Okay. So... Which of the following is a qualified transfer and not subject to the transfer taxes? A, $14,000 gifted to a child who uses the money on a new home. $16,000 paid to a car dealer directly for that child's first car. $26,000 gifted to a family member who in turn uses it to pay for their college. $20,000 paid directly to that child's university for their tuition. Which one of those four would not be subject to a transfer tax? And this is the one you thought there were two answers? Because I think there's two answers. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, so the, the $14,000 to the child, because it's under the $15,000 annual gift tax limit, and then the $20,000 paid directly to the university for the child. That's correct. I looked at, Chris is correct. So let's back it. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> Um, and I'll tell you what the, they say the answer is, and it comes down to the word qualified. There is an, what is the current gift tax exemption amount? Is it 17 grand now in 23? Just so we can oh, remember this was, this yeah. came out either in 21 or 22. Well, it was 15 for the longest time. And that, since it was back when they wrote this, it would have been 15. 15. So, okay. And I think um, it's 17 hours at 16. 
Anyways, he's going to Google that and look that up, the current gift tax exemption. The government... Seven, 17, oh, yeah. It went, 17. It went to 17, okay. yeah. But it was 16 this, and 22, so it did go up 1,000, then another 1,000 for 23. So it was 15 for a long time, then went to 16 and now to 17,000. But when this question came out, folks, either last year or the year before, the amount that you could give to someone without you, the recipient, by the way, doesn't pay the transfer tax. The person granting the gift pays the gift tax if one applies. Or at their death, their estate pays the estate tax not the recipient of the inheritance. So keep that in mind. But there are exemptions from someone having to pay gift tax. But again, folks, don't freak out on this. If you are a married couple, you can give about $24 million before you have to pay a gift tax. Some of the ways around having to pay a transfer tax, though, is to give away up to a certain limit. Back when either the question came out, $14,000 was below the limit. When these questions came out, the limit was either fifteen or 16000 So 14000 is below. So question A or answer A would not have been subject to a transfer tax. You can gift someone $14,000 and they can use that money to buy a home. They can use it for anything. They can go out and buy $14,000 worth of cigarettes and alcohol. Does not matter. You don't have to pay a gift tax on those dollars. You don't even have to file a gift tax return because the money is below the annual limit. And at the time, the annual limit, again, would have been fifteen or 16000 Today, it's 17000 So to me, A would have been correct. And as I was reading this, I thought, oh, A. B is above the limit back then. 16000 paid to a car dealer for their child's first car. That would have been subject to... Because it also didn't go to a human. And as far as I understand things, to get the annual gift tax exclusion, you have to give it to a human, not an entity. So that 16000 Chris, I think the full amount technically would have been subject to a transfer tax, even though it's well below a $12 million. No, I think that's considered a a gift to the child. It was they just don't let you pay it on their behalf. Okay. Trying to get around it, but I think it would still fall under the exclusion. So even though which... it was given directly to the 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 auto dealer, it's for the child. It's benefit of the child, so it's okay. it's considered a gift to the child. So let me explain that then. And we have to choose what the annual exemption amount would have been. And since sixteen thousand, this question most likely came out last year. Last year, when the limit was 16000 So they're saying, they're trying to trick the child. 16000 paid to a car dealer for their child's first car. But because, again, if that's the case, that 16000 this this question came out either in 22 
or 21? And you're saying the exemption in 21 was 15 and in 22 it was 16. So question B, if you are correct that money not paid to a human, but on behalf of a human to the entity counts, and I believe you're right, it would count. I don't know for certain. Question B is technically correct as well. Well, now under the today's limits, but not when it was 15000 But only $1,000 would have been subject to the transfer tax. True. Because everybody is allowed. This is what frustrates me. I don't know when this question came out, in 21 or 22. Even if it came out in 21, folks, the exemption amount back then was 15000 I'm going to side with Chris and think he is correct. If you pay the auto dealership directly, it's on behalf of the child. You don't have to physically give it to him. I'm not 100% certain on that, though. But let's just say Chris is correct. You could still be exempt. That would have been $1,000 over the then $15,000 limit. It means only that $1,000 would have been subject to a transfer tax. The $15,000 would not have been. And it simply would have meant back in 2021, whoever gave that money would have had to file a gift tax return and showed what their lifetime exemption, and back then it was 10 plus million, so let's just say 10 million, and they would have literally had to subtract $1,000 from it. They would have said, in 2021, I gave $1,000 subject to transfer tax to this person. Even though they gave it directly to the auto dealership, it was on behalf of a person. And they would subtract that from the 10 plus million exemption. So you can see the silliness of this in the sense everybody thinks if they give people more than that annual exemption amount they got to pay a tax no you have to file a gift tax return where you are forever lowering your exemption amount by disclosing taxable gifts you made from your exemption amount and only when your exemption amount is fully exhausted do you actually stop paying taxes on transfers while you're alive. So that was question B. Question C, 26000 paid to a family member who then turns around and uses it to pay for college. Again, the reason why I paused on this one, they never indicated who's giving this money. If it's a couple, And even if it was a 15,000 exemption, let's say this question came out in 21, not 22, when it was a 16,000 exemption, they could have did a split gift. Each married couple could have given half of 26,000, 13,000 each. Their exemption amount per person was 15,000 each in 2021. C could have been exempt. From transfer taxes. Well, only uh, the reason why that's not correct is you're adding to the question in order to get that to be a correct answer. So that's why on a test you'd be marked wrong for C. I overanalyzed. Okay. But I found out by their rationale why D is. And it came down to the word qualified transfer. For some reason, you guys don't consider money 
given to a child, a person, not a child, a human, that falls under the annual exemption amount, which would have been either fifteen or sixteen thousand, to be a qualified transfer, it has to go to a non-human. So their answer is D: twenty thousand paid to a university to attend to pay for their tuition. A qualified transfer is a payment made directly to a qualified educational institution for tuition or a payment made directly to a medical care provider for medical expenses. I had forgotten that they made that distinction, so I would have gotten that wrong. I didn't know they ever had that. When did I'm telling you, we never studied qualified transfers. They weren't called. So somewhere over the past 23 years. Well, they didn't have initially they didn't have those. Um, So they made these special carve outs so that you could effectively gift to your kids to pay for medical or education expenses for them without uh, being limited by the annual exclusion limits. So they carved out these special like for education, I think medical too. It's unlimited as long as you do it, it in a qualified yes. manner, and it doesn't even eat into your your lifetime exclusion either. So uh, that's they must have created this new label of qualified, and that was that's a nuance that I haven't studied for years, and and uh, I don't I don't teach that particular course, um, so I I will admit I would have missed that one. Yeah, because I initially went to A. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw D, I thought, well, this could be either yeah. one. So it was just the technicality of the word. Technicality the of the word qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Got yep. it. So what they're saying and what Chris was saying, if you pay, and, and you can see how they're trying to trick the kids. I give them credit for writing tricky questions <laughs> here. Well, it's prepping um, them for the CFP exam. True. But notice how they say 16000 paid to a card dealer directly. Uh, and 26000 gifted to a family member who then uses it for college. It has to be paid directly to the, the institution. They should have. B shouldn't have been to a car dealer to buy a car. It should have been 16000 paid to a child who uses the money to pay for a health care expense. Well, that's the same as C, where you gave it to the child and then they turned around and paid to the college. They're, right. they're getting at the fact you have to pay it to the institution to get the You have to pay it to the institution yeah. directly. Yeah. And the reason A, which is the one I went to, because it's the one that everybody knows, you're allowed to gift a certain amount in 2023 at 17000 If you give someone 17000 it is not subject to transfer tax. Well, that's not qualified transfer in their nomenclature. It is, I guess, just a transfer. A qualified transfer has to go to an institution. Anyways, little nuance there that I didn't know. So, again, I'm not smarter than a college financial planning student. So, beginning next week, Junior Junior are taking over the IRA show, retirement IRA show. (laughs) It will no longer be Chris and Jim. It will be Junior Junior because apparently they're smarter than we are. Okay, see if you can do any better on this, Mr. Instructor. Under the candidate Fitness standards, which I started thinking healthcare. Again, I don't know where they're getting all this stuff. Under the candidate fitness standards, if a person who wants to be a CFP has been convicted of embezzlement, which of the following is correct? 
Now, this one I got just because it's so stupid, but I never heard of fitness standards before. I don't know when the CFP board brought that on board. Okay. Determining if you're fit to be a CFP. Right. Well, I'm thinking healthcare. I was like, wow, they're really into fitness until I started reading the question. (laughs) Well, maybe they jolk like I do. Maybe they go on a three and a half mile weekly jolk around Lake McIntosh. Okay. So what happens if someone who's been convicted of embezzlement wants to be a CFP? A, if if the conviction was more than 10 years ago, the candidate may still become certified. B, the candidate will be permanently barred from certification. C, certification is possible, but it will be delayed by the time served for the offense committed. D, the candidate can still achieve certification immediately because the criminal penalty has already been assessed and double jeopardy would otherwise come into play. I believe it's B because there's a few things that if you've done, you are permanently barred from being a CFP. And I think embezzlement is on that list. I would hope I chose B as well. And ding, 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 ding. I would have been shocked if they, oh yeah, you can embezzle. But as long as you wait, as long as you serve time for, no, that's just silly. And double jeopardy. This isn't a criminal issue here. This is not even, it's contractual. It's not even civil. So I, I just thought, yeah, embezzlement. No, I, I, right. I don't want to hire a financial planner to help me manage my money who's been convicted of embezzlement. So that one was fairly straightforward. Uh, how much more time do we have to get through these? We've got another 10 minutes. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. This one I got right, but I'll admit it came down to a guess between two plans and vaguely remembering something that I had read not too long ago. Okay, which of the following can be used for tax-free distributions to cover the fees, supplies, and equipment for a qualified registered apprenticeship? So if you want to go do an apprenticeship, folks, a plumber, an electrician, a mechanic, which of the following can be used to cover the fees, supplies, and equipment for that apprenticeship? A, an UGMA or UTMA account. B, a 529 prepaid tuition plan. C, a 529 savings plan, or D, a Coverdell education savings account? I, and this, these nuances too, if you haven't looked at them recently, it fades into the background pretty quickly. I think it's a 529 savings plan is the answer because it tends to be the most uh, broadly available as far as what you can uh, spend it on. And a 529 is not called a prepaid tuition plan. That's a separate plan. They're trying to trick you with wording there. So I think it's, I think it's C is the correct answer. Yes, it is C. And I got it, folks, through the process of elimination and remembering reading under Secure 1 that there was a provision in there for apprenticeships. Yep. I 
knew it wasn't going to be an Ugmara Utma account. That is for minors. And generally speaking, when someone becomes uh, the age of majority, the Ugmara Utma goes away. Uniform Gift to Minors Act, Uniform Trust to Minors Act, Ugma Utma. And it's just an easy type of account to create by a, a parent or, or other person who wants to give money to a minor. But uh, the minor can't enter into a contract yet, can't open an account yet. So there would be a guardian appointed on on the account and and handle it until the minor becomes the age of majority. I knew it wasn't an Ugmara Utma. The prepaid tuition plan, um, I didn't pick up on the nuance that Chris did. We don't do college planning. We're a retirement planning firm. So this, this was going way back into my brain. I know there are prepaid tuition plans. I didn't. I always thought they operated under a 529-like umbrella. I guess I'm wrong. Uh, so when I saw a 529 prepaid tuition plan, uh, I didn't have the nuance Chris did saying that, oh, those don't exist. They're just prepaid tuition plans. I thought they operated under a 529 umbrella. But I did know a prepaid tuition plan is used to pay for tuition at an institution. So then I saw 529 savings plans and I said, well, it's got to be a 529 because D, Coverdell Education Savings Accounts, I thought, who the hell even opens those anymore? You can only put $2,000 in. No, and they're, but they're, and they're kind of legacy and more restrictive on what they can be spent on. So that was why I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that that would likely be the correct answer. So, so yeah, I backed into it and got to see. And in their answer is where I then remembered reading about this. Secure Act 1 expanded qualified distributions from 529s to include equipment for and equipment fees and books for apprenticeship programs certified with the Secretary of Labor under Section 1 of the blah, 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 blah. So I think that's good that they're allowing that, mm-hmm. that if you put money aside for your children, and they decide not to go to college. 529s, as we talked about under Secure 2, we can get at least 35000 into a Roth eventually for them. We went into that. We're not going to get it on this podcast. But also, what if your child decides not to go to college, but they're saying, my God, I can make really good money as an electrician or a plumber. Try hiring an electrician or a plumber or a mechanic. These people make buka bucks. I know because the plumber that I use just put a massive, massive expansion on his house. He lives down the road from me. I'm like, oh, good for him. He's making some decent bank. These types of professions, you don't need to go to college. College is overrated for a lot of people who enjoy working with their hands and doing things. Apprenticeships. That's where we used to be a hundred years ago. It was apprentice 200, 300 years ago. It was all apprenticeships. You went out and you learned from someone. You took less pay, but in return for them teaching you, you learned a very valuable skill that would reward you. I think this is phenomenal that now kids don't have to go to college. You don't have to pressure your kid. I saved all this money. If your kid says, hey, I think being a mechanic or an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, which are in huge demand and only going to get more and more so, I think this is a great thing that you could take money out of these tax-free. So I kind of like this. And, mm-hmm. and again, I had vaguely heard about this. Chris and I don't follow anything to do with college planning because we are distribution planners. Our clients are 55, 60, 65, 70. New clients who come to us, they're going to fall in that age range. Older clients of ours are well into their 80s. But 
most of the people we work with are beyond the college savings period. So I don't keep up to date on these at all. But anyways, neat little thing there. We'll do one more and then we'll wrap up and we'll do the rest. Okay, this one I got right, but I had to use my handy dandy HP 12C. Mm. Do you have that Texas instrument monstrosity thing that you have to press like 47 keystrokes to get an answer? Do you have that in front of you? I do have one handy. I didn't realize. I'm just lucky that I do. Okay. Wasn't well, planning. I got this with an HP 12C. Okay. I think you might be able to get it. Everyone else, start writing your Excel spreadsheets and seeing if you can get these numbers to match. Because I know all you Vanguard VGs, you love your Excels. Here's the question. Jessica would like to buy a jet ski in five years. She would like to have 5000 saved by then. She is willing to save enough each month. How much will she need to save each month for five years to reach her goal? If she can earn 3% annual interest. Hmm. That's a pretty good straightforward time value of money problem. Time value of money calculation. Mm -hmm. I will say my HP 12C nailed it. Perfect. The answer is, in fact, $77.34. That is correct. Ding, 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 ding. I didn't go through all the choices, folks. It would be pointless. Uh, $77.34. So I could see how they have just given the kids a time value of money calculation, and you guys must teach them all of that as well. Oh, I yeah. That was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Okay, I believe that's all the time we have, and I don't know how many more slides I have left. Uh, 14. So we got about halfway through. Why don't you do one more and we'll be exactly halfway through. Okay. This one I got right as well. So ding, 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 ding for me. And it's only because um, I have spent so much money on health care. I knew how health insurance worked. But they're clearly trying to make sure kids know what a deductible and coinsurance is. So keep that in mind, folks, as you try to answer this. What's a deductible and what is coinsurance? Theodore has a medical bill of $26,000. His health insurance plan has a $6,000 deductible, followed by a 80-20 coinsurance up until $12,000 of total out-of-pocket expenses. How much of the medical bill is Theodore responsible for? $26,000 medical expense, $6,000 deductible, $80,20, capped at $12,000 total out of pocket. What does Theodore have to come up with? Let's see here. He's got to come up with uh, $10,000. That is correct. The choices were 5,200, 10,000. You didn't 12, give me choices. I just had 18, to come up with it. Yeah. You so it's could 10, do the calculation in your 10, head. 10,000, yeah. So he's got to pay 10, the deductible. 000. And then uh, that leaves 20,000 left on the bill. And if it's 80, 20, that would be 20% of that would be 4,000 on that. And that 4,000 plus the 6,000 he paid in the deductible keeps him, he's still under the 12. So he's not protected from having to pay the full 4,000 coinsurance. So his total out of pocket, 10 grand. 
$10,000 on a $26,000 bill. Uh, my stroke, folks, by the way, I told you, was I think 252000 or 58 members. This is an outrageous freaking amount. I was out of pocket sixteen grand. So yeah. that you, one you really hit your out of pocket max, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, so. I hit my out of pocket max on that bad boy. Yep. Yep. But that's how insurance works. So I like how you guys, so you teach the kids all of this stuff now, huh? Yeah. I mean, not you personally, but that's, I mean, the program has really expanded since I started it. Uh, yeah, there's uh, courses and all all of these. There's, you know, different instructors that teach different elements. I don't teach all the elements of, of the ed- educational program, but um, quite a few of them I do. And I teach the capstone where we kind of bring all the stuff together and start generating uh, hypothetical retirement plans for folks. But uh, yeah, they they get they get exposed to all this kind of stuff and learn. There's just a little taste of of everything. The the amount of, the volume of stuff they have to learn to successfully get through the program uh, is meant to prepare them for the CFP exam, uh, which, as you know, uh, is broad and deep, both with many 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 topics on in all of these areas. So they've got to learn it somehow, and these are generally young people that don't have a lot of life experience. So a lot of their learning has to be book learning. And, uh, yeah, I will say taking the CFP exam as an older person that, you know, you and I both did that. You and I both did planning, you know, later on, it wasn't something right out of college. Um, it certainly helps because there's a lot of life experience that actually helps you answer many of these questions because you know how medical insurance works and you know how payroll taxes work and you know how, you know, all this stuff works because you've experienced it a fresh freshly re, uh, graduated college student the only way they know any of it is if they paid attention in class <laughs> and read the book so um, right yeah so um i know it's a you know not one of our lengthy edu shows but uh, that was kind of a fun one after the uh annuity awareness month so well, i assume we're going to finish the other seven questions next week we will do the next seven questions and then if we still have a little bit of time we'll okay. We'll get into a little something to round out an hour show next week as well. Okay. But uh, hopefully people learn something. They do get progressively harder, which for me, they got progressively easier, mostly because they stopped using stupid words like qualified transfer and instead of using balance sheet, whatever person. Statement of financial position. Whatever, statement of financial position. (laughs) Fitness standards. And here I am thinking about jolking and, and weightlifting and. So uh, as we got away from all of that book stuff and started getting deeper in, I, I found them actually easier. Uh, but I could see how the kids would most likely find them hot. Yeah. So we'll get into the more progressively difficult ones. And, and, of course, trying to add a little bit of clarity on that, especially transfer taxes. People forget about those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and scarily, uh, they're going to come screaming back in January of 2026 where the exemption amount uh, is estimated to be between five and seven. Everybody's kind of pigging about six-ish million uh, where the exemption amount will be. But don't forget, folks, there are politicians alive and breathing today who want nothing more than to lower the estate tax limit back to a million dollars. And they may someday be able to do that because this government and country is in debt up to their eyeballs. And they still are spending like junk sailors on shore leave. So you might not be subject to transfer taxes now, but someday you may be. And most people listening to this podcast have amassed millions of dollars. 
Maybe not 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 plus million, but definitely two, four, six, eight, ten million dollars. And you could lose a good chunk of that to transfer taxes. So we, we hope to be introducing you shortly to a new estate planning attorney, Pete Pot Two. Uh, his name's not Pete, though. It's uh, I won't give his name yet because he hasn't come on. We'll let him share his name. Uh, but it begins with a C. How's that, folks? Um, but uh, he may start coming on and doing some estate planning questions where we'll dive deeper into transfer taxes, how they work, what to look out for uh, in the future if the estate tax exemptions do drop below what is estimated to be about $6 million or so dollars uh, in January 1st of 2026. And uh, anyways, keep that in mind, and that's what we hope to do on this little quiz is dive a little bit deeper and, and talk very lightly about some of these, these answers. Okay. Okay. okay, sounds good. Well, you have a nice weekend, and everyone else will be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 